Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to This Week in FCPA. First, a word from our sponsor, Affiliated Monitors. Founded in 2004, Affiliated Monitors provides professional, independent integrity monitoring and ethics and compliance assessments nationally and internationally and across almost all industries. With its knowledge of effective ethics and compliance programs and cultures, Affiliated Monitor is respected for its work as the corporate monitor on matters ranging from multinational corporations to small and mid-sized companies and even individuals. Having served in over 750 monitorships, no one has more experience as an independent monitor than the team at Affiliated Monitors. For more information on how an independent monitor can help improve your company's ethics and compliance program, visit our sponsor, Affiliated Monitors, at www.affiliatedmonitors.com. Statute of Limitations, Navex Global, and World's Most Ethical Company Research, and the Harrowing Experience of a French Expat with Alstom GE and the FCPA. All this and more this week in FCPA. This Week in FCPA is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, the Compliance Evangelist, back again with Jay Rose and Mr. Monitors for another week of This Week in FCPA, episode 151 for the week ending, April 26, 2019, the World Domination Edition. Uh, so, Jay, uh, we're going to discuss is the U.S. utilizing FCPA enforcement for world domination. As a recovering screenwriter, uh, you may have some thoughts on world domination. As a frustrated novelist, I certainly do. Nevertheless, uh, there's quite a bit of uh, worldly uh, ethics, corruption, and compliance stories this week. So why don't we just uh, jump right into it? So uh, I think one of the uh, things that is on the country's mind uh with the Mueller report that got dropped last week is people are wondering about the statute of limitations with regard to President Trump. Uh, can you let us know what Sarah Crope is thinking about on the grand jury target? Sure. Sarah's uh, always excellent grand jury target blog. She's a white collar defense practitioner. Uh, so uh, kind of speaks to uh, things from that side of the fence. But she goes through and lays out the math for the statute of limitations. And uh, the earliest date uh, that the statute could run, according to her cal- – well, first of all, uh, we're talking about obstruction of justice. The statute of limitations for obstruction of justice is five years. So the earliest date the statute could run, given Trump started in office in uh, January of uh, 20, uh, uh, 2017, would be uh, January twenty. Uh, 22. And uh, the conduct, uh, which is may uh, have been obstruction, began when Trump asked then-director James Comey to back off the investigation of Michael Flynn, and that happened in February. So that would be February uh, 2022. The latest date of the conduct described in the Mueller report, January 18, 2019, where pump, uh, pump, Trump publicly accused Michael Cohen's family. I, I think you were right crimes. the first time, hump. The, the pump hump. Uh, that um, happened this year. So the statute on that claim would run January 18, 2024. Uh, these outcomes could be changed by Congress, uh, although she does note it would be unlikely. Uh, if Trump does win the election and serves out his entire second term, he'll no longer be president. Um 
So this might obviate all of this. So a uh, really interesting article. Great for Sarah to lay it out. If you don't subscribe to the uh, Grand Jury blog, go ahead and do so. It's got a lot of great stuff for the compliance practitioner. Once again, focusing on Sarah's practice of white-collar defense, but lots of things to uh, to know about. So kudos, Sarah. So, uh, so next up, um, I've got a column coming to us from my colleague on Corporate Compliant Insights, Sandra Ares, and she takes a look at a compliance playbook for Operation Varsity Blues, Lessons for the Compliance Practitioner from the College Admission Scandal. And uh, she takes us back to old Greece with uh, the crowd and the actors and the Greek chorus, and she imagines that we are now in that time, and instead of using uh, text, T-E-X-T, we're using the same spelling of text, T-E-X-T, but we are Twittering and tweeting to each other. And she talks about, with regard to Varsity Blues, uh, lesson number one she pulls from it is history repeats itself ad nauseum. And her compliance takeaway is make sure you have a clear picture of reality in your organization via empirical software solutions that reflect what's going on beneath the surface of your organization. For example, a whistleblowing portal solution or incident management system that is open to the, everyone in your company to use for submissions. If you can't perceive what is happening because there is no integrated reporting solution, you won't be able to use the lessons and experience of the past to shape the future. Now, lesson two that she extracts is mathematics, Irrational numbers can be dangerous. Compliance takeaway, have a code of conduct in place that is staunch and clear enough to defray any attempts at a general lowering of values or ethics because, quote, everyone's doing it, unquote. And her second takeaway here is watch for irrational numbers in every area of the organization and make sure that ruling authorities have someone watching them as well. Irrational ain't irrational for nothing, so get to the root of things. And lesson number three, comparative literature, tales of woe from ancient Greece to modern Sicily. Her last takeaway is don't wait to implement compliance-related training until you suspect that someone's cooking the books. If training is already implemented, make sure that it is training that is compelling and relevant with real-life examples, not just dry legislation to read and tick the box. Anywhere there is people, there is greed, so at least know your risks and what they will cost you in the end. And as said in the famous Greek, Greek, excuse me, Greek tragedy Medea, it's human. We all put self-interest first. So it's a real interesting article. Uh, it's a series that Sandra's starting, and uh, we uh, connect to that uh, on the show notes. And next up, Tom. Uh, why don't you let us know what Michael McGrath is thinking also in Corporate Compliance Insights about the NYDFS. So the NYDFS is the New York State Department of Financial Services. It regulates financial institutions, banks, and insurance companies in the state of New York. It is one of the leading state regulators in those areas. And one of the things that's important for people that work in the more general compliance space, Jay, is they're really a... Uh, cutting-edge leader in many areas, different types of compliance. And a couple of years ago, they created the cybersecurity requirements for financial services companies uh, in 2017. And now those, all of those requirements are fully in place and live, and they went live or required 
uh, to be in place on April 1 of 2019. So uh, the program around cybersecurity is not anything new. Uh, These are the four key provisions, written policies and procedures designed to protect users from risks posed by third-party service providers, the identification and risk assessment of third-party service providers, minimum cybersecurity practices required of third parties, the evaluation of third-party cybersecurity practices through diligence, due diligence, and the periodic uh, assessment, a risk-based assessment of your third parties. There are also policies and procedures for the third-party service providers, including guidelines for due diligence and contractual protections addressing access controls, uh, encryption, notifications, and reps and warranties. So, uh, <coughs> excuse me, the uh, uh, it's a it's a basic cybersecurity program for your third parties uh, because it's limited to these. Uh, businesses, financial institutions, and insurance companies in the state of New York. It's somewhat limited, but really every compliance practitioner needs to take a look at it. You need to have a plan in place, and this really gives you a framework to think about how you would set up your cybersecurity uh, program for uh, third parties. Uh, So it's good stuff, and it may portend a uh, type of regulation that we could certainly see in the United States. Uh, Next up, we have a piece from our good friend, the coolest guy in compliance, uh, Matt Kelly, over at Radical Compliance. And Matt went on a little bit of a tweet storm this past weekend and uh, put up 15 tweets about the Boeing incident. And um, I'm going to ask you to chime in a little bit later, Tom, because both you and Matt did an Into the Weeds podcast this week. But Matt is still trying to solve the question about uh, what did Boeing do? And did they uh, basically uh, fumble the football here in terms of their ethical uh, compliance issues? And what we're learning now is there was a package of technology that U.S. plane airplane companies bought that would allow them to override the uh, technology that caused both the other two foreign airlines planes to crash. And what we learn on is that the two other airlines that suffered the crash did not buy the upgraded technology package. So the question is now, was it Boeing's responsible to, uh, is Boeing responsible for providing the same level of safety technologies to all companies, whether or not they want to pay? So it appears that Boeing's poor ethical decision here about the override software created the opportunity for both Lion Air and Ethiopian Airlines to make their own own poor ethical choices. Now, Tom, how did you and uh, Matt take this conversation on your Into the Weeds? So it was really a great exploration, Jay, of something that I don't think is, is talked about as much in the compliance space, which is where are where is compliance, where are ethical considerations around what you put into products? Um, and if you think about uh, when you and I both got our first cars, disc brakes were not always standard, for instance. There have been other safety enhancements in cars which could have cost you more money. Uh, Power steering, power brakes, for instance, always cost more money uh, back when they were non-standard. But here, uh, Boeing made the conscious decision to offer an upgraded safety package for a price uplift. 
And when you make that conscious decision, there are always going to be companies that choose the lesser expensive option. By doing so, uh, obviously the question is how much did it place those companies who bought the Boeing product here, the 737 MAX airliner, and unfortunately the passengers on those planes at risk. Matt uh, made clear he faulted both Lion Air and Ethiopian Air for buying the uh, basic safety package. Nevertheless, uh, when you make that kind of dichotomy and you make that kind of business decision and you make that kind of offer on a package, there are always going to be people who take the lesser package. And is safety something that should be uh, uh, optional? Uh, clearly, uh, this gives Boeing a level of, from the legal perspective, a, le- a level of actual knowledge uh, that something existed which was more safe. And, and the liability f- flowing to Boeing uh, will have to be determined by a court. But <clears throat> how do you make that decision? Who do you have those? Um, who do you have those uh, uh, discussions with? Uh, it, it became a really interesting philosophical discussion, but it does have real-world implications. And it was something that uh, uh, Jay, I'm not sure, as a as a vendor in the compliance space, we would really counsel uh, the compliance functions we work with or the cultural aspects of corporations we work with to have compliance at the table for those discussions previously. But now it may be something that we need to, uh, to incorporate into that council. Yeah, it's just uh, Matt really has a way to getting to the heart of the matters here. And it's a, it's a fascinating look. We link to it in the show notes. Next up in our uh, trip around the world for anti-corruption and bribery, we have a piece from BBC News by Henri Astier. And in April of 2013, Frédéric Pierucci stepped off a plane at New York's JFK airport during, during a routine business trip. He was seized and handcuffed by a uniformed man. Pierucci had authorized bribes to Indonesian officials to secure a contract for boilers at a power plant for the French energy company Alstom. Uh, He worked at their subsidiary in Connecticut, and while this uh, was happening, Alstom was in a position that they were being acquired by General Electric. And um, Henri Astier takes a look of the whole timeline on what happened to Mr. Pierre and the conclusion that Henri makes is that um, basically he sees the FCPA as a cudgel that's being uh, waived by the U.S. government to impact and potentially uh, have negative consequences on our foreign uh, enemies or also foreign allies with French, with France in the um, in that uh, nomenclature there. So what we see here is that the French, uh, who looked at Alstom as uh, basically uh, a corporate treasure of the co- of the French economy, that they built um, nuclear power plants and uh, nuclear generating submarines, and they felt with the situation now that they have been acquired by GE, that that could kind of take away from their corporate sovereignty. So this is a piece that we don't usually see because we usually see pro-FCPA articles that we read talking about leveling the international playing field. And um, I just thought this was a fascinating exploration and how the uh, French and other companies 
you know, maybe Iran or companies that have had sanction against them might not have the uh, most positive view of the FCPA. So, Jay, I also thought this was a very interesting article. It's really a two two separate subject article. The first is the individual journey uh, of uh, Periucci uh, and what he went through, and that's quite harrowing. But it goes into detail not only about his dealings with the U.S. government, but how Alstom uh, literally threw him under the bus, uh, and then after they ran over him several times, got out and stomped on him, most particularly his head and his mouth, so that he wouldn't implicate uh, others in Alstom. It shows the dangers of a corporate-provided lawyer who takes his or her orders from the corporation who's paying the bill, not their client. Uh, clearly a violation of, of every state ethical requirement I'm aware of in the United States. So um, if you find yourself as an individual defendant, you might want to read this article for that reason. The second part of the article is just this unfettered criticism of the FCPA. And here you can only say that the author, uh, one, has an extraordinary uh, hard-on for the FCPA uh, because he uh, completely misreads uh, how it's used, why it's used, but also uh, the specific uh, use uh, of the FCPA in the GE Alstom merger. Uh, He's got that particularly wrong as well. Uh, but let me start with his view, um, and every compliance practitioner needs to understand it exactly for the reason you articulated, Jay, that this may be the view of, of many outside the U.S., and that uh, this is being used unfairly, um, particularly under the, uh, the Trump administration, we're America bitch attitude uh, about any country that is not Russia or China or perhaps North Korea. Um, we're going to turn on them at the, at the earliest possible uh, uh, time. But in terms of this case with Alstom, it just belies absolutely the facts on the ground. Um, first of all, uh, Alstom was under uh, potential, first of all, they've been under longtime FCPA uh, investigation. Periucci uh, clearly admitted and freely admitted he had paid bribes, but it said he was ordered to do so. That's where Alstom stomped on his mouth and kept him from talking about the uh, higher-ups in the company who uh, ordered and or approved his bribe payments. But when it came to Alstom itself, uh, the company uh, obfuscated, uh, did not cooperate with the Department of Justice, and did not do so really up until the uh, the GE merger when GE insisted uh, that they do so. Uh, Alstom was under consideration for purchase by Siemens and General Electric. Uh, the two crown jewels that you talked about, the submarine and nuclear uh, power parts of Alstom, those were not sold to GE. Um, GE bought the power turbine business. And if we can take that a step further, it's been an unmitigated disaster for GE. Uh, they have lost hand over fist. It was an idiotic business move by GE. It led to the departure of the former now two former CEOs ago, Jeffrey Immelt. Um, And so to claim that the U.S. government was doing this so GE uh, would have the opportunity to buy a money-losing outfit uh, just belies uh, any sort of rational analysis uh, going forward. Uh, He... uh, the United States, it is in the United States government's interest to prosecute bribery and corruption wherever it occurs. And it's certainly in the U.S.'s interest for companies such as General Electric, which uh, uh, 
by reputation have best practices compliance programs to take over corrupt organizations and to help move them towards uh, a less corrupt business model. But uh, in terms of GE getting some kind of discount or some kind of positive out of this, this has just been a business disaster for General Electric. Um, So those facts really belie kind of his entire analysis uh, on that, that side. But once again, I would certainly agree with your analysis. Everybody needs to read this because you need to read if, one, if you're a, an executive, what can happen to you uh, because Periucci clearly or, or delineates the missteps he thinks he made. Two, uh, how the law and how it's uh, applied or viewed overseas. And then three, um, there's uh, actually some pretty interesting quotes from uh, Dan Kahn, the head of the FCPA unit, and Andy Spaulding, a uh, professor uh, at University of Richmond uh, who teaches in the compliance space that clearly, uh, are, uh, I think, refute everything that uh, uh, the reporter puts in here. So a really interesting article and something that uh, I think is going to be, uh, we're going to be talking about it more as this administration weaponizes literally every law it can to uh, punish those that uh, don't kowtow and kiss the ring of Donald Trump? Well, Tom, I'll give you a second to catch your breath because you're up on the next article. Uh, We are into April, almost the beginning of May, and that means we're going to start to see all sorts of research from Q1 in the first half of this year begin to trickle out. The first we have is Navex Global's 2019 Ethics and Compliance Hotline Benchmark Report. That's a mouthful in itself. And uh, we're picking up a story from our good friend, Jacqueline Jager, over at Compliance Week. So, Tom, what are the takeaways from Jacqueline's analysis of the Navix report? So, uh, as always, a great piece uh, from uh, Jacqueline. And the benchmark report looked at uh, over 2,700 companies who'd received 10 or more reports uh, from uh, during 2018, the key findings that the tracking of all report intake methods uh, had had increased significantly. Companies that track only open reports made through their hotline showed uh, 1.1 report through uh, for every 100 employees, and that was literally doubled with companies who tracked it through all, all other methods. Um, up to 2.1. The message to compliance and ethics officers, at least in Jacqueline Mines, was clear that companies that do not gather reports from intake methods other than hotlines miss a large percentage of risks and concerns employees are bringing to this attention. So um, what that really means, Jay, is hotline is one part of your reporting system. And uh, it, it really all involves an ethical culture. It all involves a culture of compliance. And it all involves not only a speak up, but a listen culture. So you've got to train your middle managers to uh, how, how to be intake sources. You've got to train your local compliance champions. You've got to train your uh, uh, HR people. And of course, as compliance practitioners, you have to be able to accurately and efficiently uh, triage claims to get the important ones to the places they need for investigation, literally up to the board of directors. So uh, some great uh, points on here. Um, uh, She quotes uh, Carrie Penman uh, and others from um, Navex, a couple of outside counsel. uh, And it's all about trust and lack of trust. So uh, good stuff from Jacqueline uh, uh, as well. 
So next up, as promised, we've got uh, some quick little tidbits from the 2019 World's Most Ethical Companies list. This comes to us from Ethisphere when they release their rankings at this time of the year. And the first volume of the 2019 data uh, was obtained from honorary companies to assess their program and create industry benchmark. And here's three quick little things. First of all, diversity seems to be at its highest level. Among the 128 companies from the 2019 awards list, women hold 28% of director positions, a 4% increase over the last year. This compares with only 21% overall on the large cap index. Next, disseminating information about disciplinary actions. Amazingly, one out of every 10 employees surveyed by Ethisphere indicated that they either agree, rather they either disagree or strongly disagree that the rules and associated disciplinary actions for unethical behavior or misconduct have been shared with the company. That said, nearly one third, 32% of honorees do communicate publicly about such concerns. The last takeaway uh, is about the support for middle management. An employee's immediate manager is the most commonly used resource for not only asking questions, but for also reporting observed instances of misconduct. Uh, this article is by Ardi Maharaj, and it runs in the FCPA blog, which we've linked to in the show notes. And you can also click there to request the 2019 WME World's Most Ethical Company Report. Last up, Tom, we have an article uh, from uh, Dunstan, Allison Hope in the BSR.org website talking about transparency challenges in CSR. So uh, another interesting uh, article and something that is going to become uh, more important uh, as not only uh, social media awareness and the amplification of reputational damage through social media occurs. Um, but we have government sharing information, and that is also moving into the CSR space. And I thought that was a great point, and that, frankly, that's what the author starts out with. He really gives us um, three concepts to think about with uh, transparency in your CSR program. Number one, awareness, that they, uh, reports have substantively array raised awareness about complex data sharing relationships between not only governments, but between governments and companies. And this has uh, resulted in higher quality public policy proposals on key human rights issues. Second is advocacy. We see even more advocacy today, Jay, than probably uh, any other time. And these reports uh, from governments and companies have enabled civil organizations and human rights defenders to advocate for yet even more improved and then, of course, accountability. These uh, reports generated by, once again, both governments and companies have provided a place for companies to explain their processes, to talk about those who didn't meet their standards and may have been sanctioned, may have been terminated, uh, and going forward. So uh, it's uh, there's really an, an urgent need for disclosure, but this disclosure of information uh, really has helped, uh, I think, the public, uh, corporations and governments, all, all who have a role in the uh, transparency around uh, business and human rights. And as governments step back uh, even more, 
uh, companies are ta- are being forced to take over more and more roles, and certainly in the role of human rights, human slavery, or human trafficking, uh, slavery, etc. Businesses are being asked to do more and more. So, uh, uh, good stuff to uh, recall. The conference that you're attending. Why don't you tell us about the ECI's Impact 2019 in Dallas next week? Right. So uh, for those who uh, are have the opportunity, and we've linked to the uh, registration in the show notes, the ECI uh, is having their annual event uh, next week, Impact 2019 in Dallas. And it's going to be a, a great event. Uh, uh, ECI is uh, one of the uh, top uh, ethics organizations, and we're really going to have the opportunity to uh, uh, take a look at the benchmarking for ECI's high-quality program. And ECI recently rolled out a high-quality program assessment tool. Uh, You'll have the opportunity to utilize that assessment tool, I believe, at no charge if you attend the conference. And it's a great way for you to assess where your organization is. I'm going to lead a panel on companies, uh, first of all, of uh, compliance practitioners who were part of the team that developed it because it was designed by compliance practitioners for compliance practitioners. Uh, but more importantly, they're going to talk about their experiences within their organization uh, by not only uh, uh, with a high-quality program but the assessment tool. So I think it's uh, certainly something that uh, you would want to attend. Uh, Brian Bitkowski is going to be the keynote speaker. There's some really interesting keynotes, uh, one by Amy Edmondson about the fearless organization creating psychological safety for learning, innovation, and growth. Uh, a, a fellow named Tony Brigman, who's going to talk about fun, fun in the workplace. And he comes from Southwest Airlines. Um, Jay, my father uh, was a labor arbitrator and had many arbitrations with Southwest Airlines. And even as contentious as labor arbitration can be, um, Southwest and their unions and their employees all emphasize the fun nature of working there. And and so I'm going to be really interested uh, to see lawyers typically don't think about fun uh, as part of your workplace. And then there's a fellow named Sam Silverstein. And Sam, he is a true evangelical on accountability. And so he's going to give a keynote. And I think each one of those in their own unique ways will give the compliance practitioner uh, uh, really interesting and useful information. Your colleague, Eric Feldman, is going to speak. Some of our good friends, David Bunker, Katura Patel, Paige Motes from uh, Dell is going to be there. Uh, Pat Nazo, um, Philip Winterburn from Conversant, Valerie Charles is going to be there. So it's going to be a great event, and uh, I'm looking forward to uh, meeting people. I'm looking forward to uh, hearing more about the high-quality assessment tool and high-quality programs. So I hope uh, hope you can attend. Once again, we've linked to it in the show notes. So uh, also later on in May is the annual gathering of the Compliance Week tribe. Uh, do we have a special for our listeners, Tom? We do, uh, Jay. Uh, I've uh, been uh, given a $300 discount, and we are able to pass that along to any listeners of our podcast. Uh, the code is pretty uh, <clears throat> pretty robust. It's TOM300. But if you enter that code, you should get a $300 uh, discount. We've linked to the agenda and registration information in the show notes. Uh, since it's so hard to crack, does that mean if we put in TOM1000, we can get a $1,000 discount off? Well, uh, you could try. So uh, another timely thing that uh, Tom did this week is he had a five-part series 
with our colleagues at Ascent Compliance. Tom, why don't you tell us a little bit about that series? Sure. Ascent Compliance is one of the, uh, uh, I would say country, but they're Canadian companies. So the uh, hemisphere's leaders in supply chain compliance. Jared Connors, who is my colleague uh, way back when we were both at Red Flag Group, uh, has uh, moved over there. Uh, Jared's a CSR expert. And we're going to... um, or we had, rather, a first of a multi-part series uh, with Ascent. So we introduced the topic of supply chain risk management. We talked about who is Ascent. Uh, I talked to the general counsel, Travis Miller, about how supply chain risk management and compliance developed. And Jay, in a most interesting uh, podcast, he said it actually went back to uh, the conservation movement in the uh, 19th century. Uh, around the uh, wiping out of the buffalo of carrier pigeons of uh, National Park System created by Theodore Roosevelt. That led to the second environmental wave, literally, that Rachel Carson and Silent Spring brought about in the 60s. So I found that a really interesting uh, underlying basis. I didn't know that we could uh, track our spiritual forebears all the way back to Teddy Roosevelt and beyond. Um, And then uh, Jared uh, talked about some compliance failures And then what are some of the continued market drivers for uh, uh, development? We hit that a little bit when we talked about the article by Dunstan, Allison Hope, but uh, Travis Miller came back and talked about the, uh, how multiple stakeholders now have influence on a variety of corporate actions. And those multiple stakeholders could be your employees, could be your board of directors, could be the corporation itself, but it also could be your customers. It could be those on social media or a wide variety of others. And Jay, uh, as you know, we had a uh, Everything Compliance podcast recording uh, go up yesterday, and we were joined by our latest panel member, Sarah Haddon. She's the uh, publisher at Corporate Compliance Insights, and uh, you named our episode the Drink in the Kool-Aid edition, uh, but it was a great uh, podcast, and that went up yesterday. And I hope you will, uh, our listeners will check out Everything Compliance uh, as uh, Sarah's joined us and she had some great insights for us. In addition to your mon- uh, a montage uh, of uh, Drink the Kool-Aid. Yeah, it was, a, it was a lot of fun. That We had some great energy, and we look forward to having Sarah be part of the Everything Compliance gang. So on behalf of Tom Fox, the Compliance Evangelist, and myself, Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitor, we'd like to thank you for joining us for this week in FCPA, episode 151 for the week ending April 19, 2019, the World Domination Edition. Thanks for joining us and have a wonderful weekend. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. If you have any questions for either Jay or myself, you can email Jay at jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. You can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. I hope you can join me next week at ECI and you can join Jay and I at Compliance Week at the end of May. Once again, link to the discount or use the discount code to get a $300 discount to Compliance Week uh, courtesy of this podcast. This Week in FCPA is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.